Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale November 11th, 2020. I'm Ryan Pagos, a.k.a. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, Tucker, Tucker. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. Hanging in there, drinking some coffee, got my freshly laundered t-shirt on. The simple things. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, you know, I wanted to point out a tweet that we got from one of our listeners, Dan Everett at Dan Ev1985. And he tweeted to me with pictures of the War of the Realms omnibus, this big, beautiful, giant tome. He says, oh, my, it's a thing of beauty. Excited to dive in tonight. I think I need to revisit the reading club on Marvel's pull list. Uh, which is awesome. Dan, I'm very excited for you to read that as one big, big, massive tome. And if anybody out there has not heard our Reading Club episode about War of the Realms, I think we put it together this spring, early summer. That was one of the first ones we did. Yeah. Now, that's a dang comic that deserves an omnibus right there. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a triple D yeah. all the way. Ding, dang, you delay, know if I've ever heard one. <laughs> and this week we have our reading club and it's going to be with Mr. Chris Claremont talking about some classic X-Men stuff, which we're very excited about. Of course, if you are excited about Chris's run on X-Men, there's the new Marvel made Paragon collection, Chris Claremont premiere bundle, which you can check out at marvelmade.net. And we'll get into more of that much later. The other thing I wanted to bring up because last week we reinstated the bell and our favorites of the week. Um, I think something that we should do this week, Tucker, is um, start. We've been talking about it behind the scenes about bringing in some fun superlatives and things that, you know, we love about each book in different ways, you know, so maybe it's a fight of the week or, you know, our favorite coloring or whatever it is. It could be anything, any given week. So as our wonderful producer, Jorge, uh, likes to thinks we should call it the pulleys. That's (laughs) the pulleys. Is the yeah. award system that we should be calling this the pulleys? <laughs> Please direct all commentary about that naming to Jorge Estrada. Um, we'll figure that out. But as we go through these books, the new books that are on sale this week, we're going to throw out our favorites as well as some fun stuff to sort of hone you guys in on what we dig about these books. Uh, all right, why don't we dive into the new books? You kick us off. All right, let's do this. We are starting with Amazing Spider Man number 52. It is written by Nick Spencer with art by Patrick Gleason, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is such an action-packed issue. The roller coaster that is Amazing Spider-Man is really, really fascinating to read because it feels like each issue is presenting a new kind of challenge, presenting a new dramatic question to Spider-Man, to everyone involved in this whole, at the moment, Sinister saga, everything going on with Spidey with Norman Osborn, with, can I whisper it, Harry Osborn. It is really, really fascinating. And this issue in particular, I think, is such an excellent showcase of Patrick Gleason's art. Look, at the end of the day, this is a super dramatic issue. This is a really, really unexpected issue. It's really, really interesting. At the end of the day, I think this is one of the most kind of dramatic, biggest Kind of the 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 shadows are so big, the colors are so bright, the explosions are huge. I say all of that literally and also metaphorically. It's really, really a testament to the work that's being done in this series as a whole that it can handle all of that kind of stuff. Super dramatic stuff. If you're ready for that, dig in. So Tucker, what's your pulley for it? 
What do you what do you got? I know I have one. I, I'll say best eyes. Ooh. I just love the way that Patrick draws Spidey's face, Spidey's expressions, and particularly those big eyes that he has, mm-hmm. the kind of almost ultimate Spider-Man style big eyes that I am just uh, a big fan of. Yeah. All right. We have another Amazing Spider-Man issue this week. It's Amazing Spider-Man number 52.LR. It's a Last Remains book. So the main series is really dealing with Spider-Man and what he's going through with Kindred, while the dot lr issues are tying into spidey supporting cast the other spider characters uh sin eater various other elements of the world and this one uh we follow the spider characters who have teamed up with black cat and they are going to dr strange and so they're getting all kinds of wild and weird stuff so my pulley for this book is the most surprising story throwback of the week because it ties into Spider Island, which I was not expecting whatsoever. It was a cool little um, connection to that and seeing how uh, Last Remains actually brings more of that story into play right now is pretty, pretty cool. This one is written by Nick Spencer and Matthew Rosenberg with art by Federico Vincentini, colors by Marcio Meniz and David Curiel, and letters by VCs Ariana Mar. Oh, yeah. Um, now coming up, we have Champions number two. It's written by Eval Ewing with art by Simone DeMeo and Bob Quinn. Colors by Federico Bli and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Uh, I'll kick it off right off the top here. Pulley for this one is Freshest Take. Uh, and I know that's a pretty bold statement, but when you look at the work that Eve is doing, not just in this book, but across the work that she's done at Marvel Comics so far, it feels like she's forging new ground. I think she's a writer that can tap into the next generation of readers, of creators, and of characters. And that's obviously kind of the central point of Champions, this series. But the way she writes about it, the conflicts she puts these characters in between themselves as a team and the world, and the way that she puts them in contrast with each other is really something that I think harnesses a modern day mentality and point of view and uh, a way of realizing these characters. I think Eve is so tapped into a really fresh, like I said, youthful perspective of the world. And it doesn't just manifest itself in terms of that kind of light, youthful mentality. It manifests itself with a confrontation of issues and events that are so relevant and that will continue to be relevant and i am just such a huge fan for not only eve's ability to talk about that but to talk about it in a way that utilizes these characters like miles like sam like kamala in such a perfect way i'm just such a huge fan yeah so up next is iron man number three written by christopher cantwell art by cafu colors by frank darmada and letters by vcs joe caramagna uh this nearly got my pulley for uh, artist of the week uh, because Cafu doing you know the the pencils and the inks and really getting in there it is gorgeous gorgeous stuff there's some beautiful stuff especially the opening sequence with Unicorn who everybody knows is one of my favorites because he's got a freaking unicorn on his <laughs> chest and he fires a beam uh, out of his head for some reason um, but my pulley for this one is best new Marvel Universe boy band with Korvac <laughs> controller Blizzard and Unicorn they're gonna top the charts they're going to be fantastic. I can't wait for everybody to experience their uh, their amazing songs. Uh, on top of that, you also get a whole bunch of interesting stuff as Tony is 
figuring out his place in the world and what the hell is going on with Korvac and a great sort of like slap across the face conversation with, um, with Hellcat in here. Oh yeah. We go to magnificent Ms. Marvel number 16. It's written by Saladin Ahmed with art by Minkyu Jung, colors by Ian Herring and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. We have heard the recent news that this series, magnificent as it has been, will wrap up with issue number 18, which means we're speeding towards the end here. And boy, oh boy, it makes me appreciate every single thing going on in here even more. Speaking like I was of Eve's ability to tap into a youthful perspective, to utilize a character in a way that I think is so fresh and really bold. Look, that's the definition of what Saladin and Minkyu have been doing with this series all along. And I think it'll carry them through issue number 18, which will be the big oversized finale. My pulley for this one, quick side note, is best New Jersey in Marvel. <laughs> um, Best uh, use of New Jersey in Marvel <laughs> comics this week. Yes, exactly. That's that's well, better put. Look, at the end of the day, we have Kamala. We have Amulet, which is such a fun character. And I think such a perfect Ms. Marvel character. And I say that in terms of the series, in terms of the energy that this character brings and the way that this character interacts with Kamala, I think is so, so great. And like I said, we're kind of speeding towards the end now. Been such a huge fan of Saladin and Minkyu's run with this series. And uh, I know I'm going to look back on it so fondly. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Marvel Zombies Resurrection number four, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, with art by Leonard Kirk, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Uh, this is the big honking end to this limited series. You got zombies. You got a couple of heroes left. You got really creepy, creepy, creepy stuff going on throughout this. There's some really messed up conversations between the zombified Mary Jane and Peter Parker, the zombified uh, Fantastic Four and the kids who are left. Big revelations. My pulley for this one is the best flurkin moment of the week <laughs> because we've got a flurkin that survived the zombie apocalypse and does something wonderful and disgusting in here that uh, I will cherish forever. This is a hell of a limited series. I think. If you haven't read this yet, read the prelude and then read these four issues in quick succession. It's a really rock solid uh, storyline. Excellent. And next up, we go to Savage Avengers number 14, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Patch Zercher, colors by Java Tartaglia and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Pulley here for best Black Knight appearance of the week. Yes, it may be the only Black Knight appearance of the week, but boy, was I excited when it happened. Um, I think Jerry is such a master writer of comic books, including his symbiotic work here with Patch. There are some sequences in here that happen largely without any dialogue, without any text at all, and it just works so beautifully. And then as you go throughout, I think he just has such a command of the medium of when to push, when to lean back, when to let you just absorb the material as you go on its own and really ultimately appreciate the art that's on display here, which is excellent. This is so much fun because, yes, like I said, we have Black Knight. We have Conan, of course. We have Magic in this issue. Uh, we have the Juggernaut. That is one hell of a grab bag of a team right there. I they love work the so way... well together, too. Exactly. That's the thing. That is so crazy, and I think 
It's just that Jerry's that good. This means you could literally take any four or five characters in the entire Marvel universe and throw them together and say, Jerry, have at it. And it would come out to be something special. I think that's how much respect I have for him as a writer. And that's what I think he can do. Overall, it's just great. It's great stuff. And it is very, very Savage Avengers. Heck yeah. I will also give this a bonus pulley for the best dragon fight of the week. Because you got that crew (laughs) versus Satorang, the Asgardian dragon, who is also my new favorite character. That guy (laughs) is a delight. Real fun. Uh, all right, let's move over to Star Wars because we've got Star Wars Darth Vader number seven written by Greg Pak, art by Rafael Ayanko, colors by Niraj Manan, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, look, this one's an easy pulley. Scariest badass of the week going to Darth Vader. I mean, it's hard to <laughs> hard to not choose that. But he is nearly destroyed by the Emperor, told he can't use force powers leading into this issue. And he's on Mustafar, which is also psychologically devastating for him. And he is up against an assassin of the Sith. He repairs himself using poor little mouse droids and he fights the assassin while standing in lava. And then a whole bunch of other stuff happens. Dude, Greg on this book is killing it. This is so good. So fun. If you love Darth Vader or star Wars, this is a must read. I totally agree. I scream from the rooftops about that dang book it is so good but next i have to move on to strange academy number five it's written by scotty young with art by umberto ramos colors by edgar delgado and letters by vcs clayton cowles you know as i say those names out loud i wonder when scotty wrote this script i wonder when umberto put together this issue just because of how long i know that this series has been in the works let alone the slight delay we had over the summer But the way that it just comes together, they must have been so excited for this book to come out, for this issue to come out, for this first arc. There's something there, and that's where I'm going to go with for my pulley, is maybe best budding relationships, Mm. best dynamic, because of the way that, well, in the first four issues, we've seen the kids of Strange Academy be tested in new ways. They're learning new things. It's largely been in an academic context, or at least in New Orleans. This issue, I think, takes it to a new level, though, and it really tests them in a real way. And I really love that, not just because it provides an opportunity for Umberto Ramos to showcase some incredible designs, some great atmosphere. Edgar's colors are just beautiful and so pitch perfect. I mean, this is some of the best casting you'll ever see in a comic. Um, pairing Scotty and Umberto and the entire crew like this. So it's not just that. It's also the ability to put these characters, these new characters, these characters we're still getting to know. Every single action they take, everything they do is still presenting new information to us because we don't know how they're going to react. We don't know how they're going to handle a difficult situation. By throwing them to a cauldron like we are in this issue, uh, you get to know them so quickly. It's just doing such a great job of creating a holistic dynamic this gestalt that emerges from these different pieces into a greater whole. That is that thing that we've been hearing about behind the scenes at Marvel, about how special this book is, about these characters, about the work that's been put into here for, I think probably it's safe to say years now. And it just all comes through. You you can really feel it. It's one of those things that I think you can feel more than you can define out loud with words, but it is so much fun and it's really, really special stuff. Yeah. Speaking of special stuff, it's my... Pick of the week with Taskmaster number one, 
Written by Jed McKay, pencils by Alessandro Vitti, colors by Guru, EFX and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I read this book in the spring. It was done. It was about to be released. Everything happened in the world. And so it was it was held back a bit. And it's now finally out. And I remember loving it so much when we first when it was first, you know, getting ready to go to print. And now here I'm like reminded exactly why I friggin love it. The opening of this book is wild. Someone pretty important in the Marvel Universe is dead. And the the culprit looks to be Taskmaster. And so you that basically spurs on everything. It becomes a murder mystery. Who killed this person? And why does it seem like Taskmaster if he says he didn't do it, but maybe he did, dun, 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 all kinds of wild stuff. It becomes big, cool spy stuff. Um, I have two pulleys for this one because Ooh. we make the rules. We can do whatever the <laughs> hell we want. It's our freaking show. So I've got one, which is the best Dolly Parton reference of the week for <laughs> Taskmaster's ringtone in this book, which I think is a terrific touch. Yes, Taskmaster, a.k.a. Tony Masters, would love Dolly Parton. Anyone who's sane <laughs> loves Dolly Parton. And then the best chase scene for the week for me is in this book as well, as Taskmaster is uh, riding in a, a golf cart trying to escape from a shooter who is on a like a motorcycle. And it is wild. It's really fun. Uh, it utilizes Taskmaster's abilities and just like clever storytelling, some good jokes action and the art is fantastic like, everything about this book knocked my socks off the uh, you know the second time around reading it uh if you are like oh i know taskmaster he's gonna be in a movie this is a great book to to get a little bit of insight into taskmaster how taskmaster can kind of fit into the marvel universe just terrific top to bottom all right next up we have warhammer marnius calgar number two it's written by kieran gillen with art by jason burrows Colors by Javatar Tagli and letters in production by VCs Clayton Cowles. This really feels like it embodies the spirit of a super immersive game and world inside a comic. And by that, I mean, it feels like an RPG in a big way that I think is something that fans of Warhammer will love because from what I understand, that is a huge part of the storytelling. If you're kind of walking along this landscape getting to know these places, encountering new characters, encountering new obstacles and things like that, getting to know who these people are as you go along, but also getting to know the nature of the questions that this kind of book is asking. It's funny for me to read this in one way because every time with Marnie's Calgar, I see him, I just see like big dude, muscular, like one cyborg eye, one real eye, silver hair, and I just think, and this guy's got to be my pulley for best cable guy that reminds me of cable, but he's not cable. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's a super, super interesting read. All right. Now it is time to get into the 10 of swords section of the show because we have three chapters of the big 22 part crossover this week. We have 14, 15 and 16. I'm going to start things off with Marauders number 15. And guess what, Tucker? Yes. I'm giving it another pick of the week. Whoa. We so make the rules. Good. I was. Just looking at it again, and I went, you know what? <laughs> no rules, just our rules. We can make up all the rules. Uh, it's so good. It's written by Jerry Duggan and Benjamin Percy. Art by Stefano Caselli. Colors by Edgar Delgado. Letters by VCs Corey Pettit. I mean, wow. This, uh, Jorge, you're going to have to throw a bleep in here. <laughs> so for my uh, pulley of the week for this one, it is the biggest holy shit 
nightmare of the week <laughs> with the first few pages to the point where I stopped reading the book, went, oh no, we're missing an issue. What happened? Am I losing my mind? And then I kept reading and I was like, oh, Jerry and Benjamin, you turds, you did this. You got me. <laughs> it's so good. This is the continuation of the big pre-contest feast that's going on between Krakoa and Arako. And I can't say anything. I mean, they eat unicorn, which is awful. They have fights. One of the great things about all of this, and I think this goes probably for all three of our books, mainly this one and maybe Wolverine, they're funny. There's real bursts of humor on top of being devastating and scary and weird and massive. Um, I laughed out loud numerous times in here. Uh, there's some great Wolverine moments, as you'd expect. I'm trying to not give anything away because there's so much going on in these books, but you get to learn a lot about the Krakoans and the Arakines. Uh, throughout this issue it's it's fantastic completely completely agreed and next up we go on to chapter 15 of ten of swords with excalibur number 14 it's written by teeny howard with art by phil noto and letters by vcs ariana mar it is just such a pleasure to read a teeny howard book with art by phil noto how good is that just right from the start in this one as we get into the actual tournament um, we are in the early pages of this, uh, preparing for the showdown between Betsy and Iska the Unbeaten. There is an exchange here. This is right at the top. And this is about as spoiler as I'll get here. Iska goes up to Captain Britain and says, I was just giving, just giving some friendly advice. Unbeaten isn't just a name. And Betsy says, that sword you carry, it's called Mercy, isn't it? And Iska says, don't get excited. That one is just a name. Come on. Teeny, you kill me. Uh, so good. So much fun. There's a line later with magic and cypher mm -hmm. that oh, I, I can't even. I love magic in this storyline. She's yes. so great. Uh, anyway, sorry. No, please. I'm all for every single uh, compliment that we can both give this book and this crossover. It's so much fun. What I loved most about this, and this is something that we've been talking about or at least hearing about for a while now. Something's going on with Doug Ramsey. Something is happening with Cypher that makes everyone, apparently, in the X office and all the X writers, super, super excited. And I think in this issue, we're starting to get a really, really good picture of what that is. And uh, it is totally, totally unexpected and so much fun. Uh, all right, that's what we have for Excalibur. And now we go on to my pick of the week, which is chapter 16 of Ten of Swords, Wolverine number seven. It's written by Benjamin Percy and Jerry Duggan with art by Joshua Kassar, colors by Guru EFX, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. My pulley for this one is so obvious. It's maybe best splash uh, of the week because- I had the same, same pulley. Right? I mean, that Kassara dude oh my is God. something else. Every single time I think I am starting to, to get a command of where he's at as an artist, I really do feel like he's starting to level up on a kind of bi-monthly basis. He's outdoing himself again and again and again. The art is just off the charts. It is as much as a page of comic book art can be bursting off of the page. There's been a ton of different B, C, D, E, F, G, 
all the way down storylines in Ten of Swords. One of the most interesting ones, obviously, has been going on with Logan. Um, he has his own journey that he's going on parallel to everything that he's uh, doing alongside the X-Men in Ten of Swords. We're starting to see the effects of that. We're exploring that more in a bigger way. It's really interesting, and uh, we're fully into it now. We are really into the tournament when it comes to this. Um, because now we're starting to tally points one way and the other. We're starting to see who's winning, who's losing, uh, where the X-Men are, and uh, who's behind the eight ball, all of that stuff. We are speeding ahead. Uh, and now, you know, with next week, we're going to get chapters 17, 18, and 19. And then after that, we got one week left uh, through chapter 22, which is the finale. This series has been everything I've wanted and so, 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 so much more that I didn't even know I wanted that I didn't know that you could put into a book. Certainly, I didn't know you could put into a crossover as ambitious as this one that tells these stories on a series level, on a team level that gives you what you want when you're reading Excalibur or Wolverine or X-Factor, whatever it might be, but also progresses the story as a whole forward. It is so impressive there will be a time very soon where we can give full credit and shout out to uh, the X office for all of the work that they've done in coordinating this. Uh, I want to get through the end of the story first because I'm just that excited. But uh, man, it has been a good time. Yeah. The the other you know key thing you, you sort of touched on is these are the contests are actually happening. So like the battle between Krakoa and Arako is happening. There's a scorecard mm -hmm. after each match, I guess. Yeah. But also like. It completely just destroyed all my expectations and everything about this is like completely wild and weird and super fun, man. This is like this right here, this section of the story, this is like, uh, it yeah. rules. It rules yeah. so hard. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. That's what we have now on sale for individual issues this week. And now we go into print collections with Avengers Epic Collection, Heavy Metal, Dawn of X, Volume 10. Marauders by Jerry Duggan, Volume 2, Star Wars, Volume 1, The Destiny Path, and X-Men by Jonathan Hickman, Volume 2. Yeah. On Marvel Unlimited, we've got Empire Number 4, which is the Hulkling and Wiccan Wedding. Um, you got the Empire Handbook, Empire X-Men Number 2, the Guardians of the Galaxy Number 5, Giant Size X-Men, Phantom X Number 1, so good, and plenty more. Lots of stuff in Marvel Unlimited this week for everybody, so um, get hyped, get ready for all that. All right, Tucker, it is now time for our reading club section of the show, and uh, we're going to talk to the man, the myth, Mr. Chris Claremont. We're talking to him about Days of Future Past uh, and the Marvel-made Paragon collection of his work. But really, with Chris, we're all over the place. We're talking about all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stories, uh, past, present, future, and mm. so much more. Let's chat with Mr. Chris Claremont right now. All right, Marvel's pull list listeners, you're in for a treat because now on the show is legendary writer Chris Claremont. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, uh, this is exciting. We, we were thinking, OK, what possibly could we talk about uh, from across your amazing uh, suite of work for Marvel? Um, <laughs> and we, we came to a short story, but one of the most impactful and I think influential for comics is Uncanny X-Men 141 and 142 Days of Future Past. And I was looking at the release dates for these issues, uh, which happened to be October and November of 1980. So these just turning wow. 40 years old. 
right now. It's um, it's kind of incredible. Well, I mean, it was what it was, is what it is. <laughs> it's awfully interesting the amount of story one can fit into 36 pages over two months. Yeah, there's there's a lot. Because those are the rules back then. Every issue was usually one issue, every story. If it was really good, you could go to two. If it was essentially the coming of Galactus, you could have three, but the last third of the third issue had to be the start of something new. In that case, Johnny Storm goes off to university. So we played then by different rules. Do you remember the first inkling of anything having to do with this story? Are these things that you came up with on the fly month by month, or are these things that sometimes you had uh, the seeds of for a really long time. What was the case here? I think it's probably both. It, you have to bear in mind that that came out of an environment where John Byrne and I were working in synergy for the better part of 30 issues. In that respect, three years plus. And we were constantly bouncing ideas off of one another. I'd have an idea. Well, mine was basically Phoenix. He had an idea, which was, I guess, when to go and then Days of Future Past. And we just batted the ball back and forth and put it all together. Uh, John would draw art with liner notes and as often as not, I would sort of ignore the liner notes. <laughs> well, it worked for Stan and Jack, so I figured I'll follow the, their example. And with Days of Future Past, we just had Phoenix. We just saved the Omniverse and we wanted to blindside the reader with a story that said, uh, maybe not. I mean, we may have saved the Omniverse, but the human future, not so much. You mentioned that you were collaborating, working closely. What was, can you go into what that collaboration looked like? Were you in the same places? Was it a lot of phone calls? Were there, you know, if this is pre-email for many of our <laughs> listeners. So uh, to, to understand sort of the working relationship that was going on there. Well, it wasn't just pre-email, it was pre-computer. I was working most of those issues off of a typewriter and a notepad, which I still do today. What are those notes? What are those? What do we, we got there? <laughs> Bring it back. What secrets? It's everything. It's my life, uh, which I, when I'm done, I toss it off to Columbia University and they put it in the archives with the rest of us. Um, but look, it's sort of mind-blowing to know that I am in the rare books depository just down the hall from a Gutenberg Bible. <laughs> and apparently it's been one of the more popular pieces they have there with, with undergraduates and graduates coming down to, to work their way through the stuff for the last, well, I, good God, it's probably getting close to 10 years, mm -hmm. which is terrifying. But we'd bounce ideas back and forth and and in this case, John had an idea, we pushed, and this is what came about. But the nice thing is because the story structure was so focused, it's essentially the first issue was the setup, get them in over their heads. And the second issue, we save the day, except in Days of Future Past, we save the day in 1980 with the X-Men defeating the Brotherhood and Mystique, but the future? As Charlie says, when Cyclops asks, what's going to happen? He says, we won't know till we get there. And by then it'll be too late. So the 
perspective is reversed from the film. From the film, you're in the future looking back. So when Logan returns to what he knows of as the present, he knows everything's been sorted out and all is saved. Gene is alive. Scott is alive. We move happily on. In the comic, because the baseline there is 1980, they don't know. So it allows writers such as myself to play with what happened next. And that's where the story Prelude to Future Past comes from. You know, it's funny how Ryan mentioned the date of, you know, how this came out. And, and Chris, you mentioned your notebooks being in the archives at Columbia and, and talking about the film. And it's really amazing, you know, the influence that this story has had. When you look back on a story like this, do you look back on it with pride? Do you look back on it with seeing holes in the story, seeing things you wish you'd done, um, seeing choices you wish you'd made? Uh, or do you kind of just chalk it up to, hey, we had a certain number of days to put this together and it is what it is and, and, I'm, and I'm proud of that. What are your feelings looking back on it, especially given the weight that it's had in the decades since? Basically all of the above. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm totally jazzed that the, the story, along with a whole bunch of other stories, is as popular as it is, even today. I mean, think about it. We're 40 years down the road. That means I'm working... When I go to conventions, remember conventions when they gathered lots of people in a single space and we all talked about comics? To have people, I mean, I'm working on my third generation of fans. And to think of that in, in ego boo terms is just mind blowing. Uh, to think of it in terms of, I still consider myself a working writer. I still enjoy contributing to the canon, which Prelude uh, represents, is totally cool. But also, I try not to think about past work. It's done. I've been there. I've done that. I want to play with what will happen next, the, the, the unknown passage that I'm exploring. So in that sense, Prelude is right up that alley. It's like, how do I take a moment where everyone thinks they know what happened and pull a surprise? Uh, for example, there have been comments online about, well, how could Nightcrawler be in this story when he was, according to Rachel, he was killed? Well, A, Rachel could have gotten it wrong. B, when your sweetie is a sorceress and she may, you know, she may have had a choice, do I live or do, does Kurt live? She may have cast a spell. She may have sacrificed herself to save, to save him. I mean... We are always pulling rabbits out of hats. I mean, I can think of at least one character that I was certain I killed off pretty comprehensively, only to discover five years later that she'd been in an organic bubble at the bottom of Jamaica Bay for seven years or six years or five years. And surprise, Gene's alive. <laughs> On the other hand, anyone who knows Jamaica Bay knows it's not that deep. If you're digging up a space shuttle, you're bound to find whatever's there. But... This is comics, and apparently Jamaica Bay is as deep as the Marianas Trench. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Prelude of Future Past, uh, because this is the brand new story that is in the Marvel Made Paragon collection of your work, which is, it's cool. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the characters who are in this and sort of where it fits into this canon of Days of Future Past and Days of Future Present. 
right? What, what was the the story that was in the the annuals um, that crossed over with Ahab? Oh, that that came out of X Factor. That's that's actually a, a Louise Simonson question. Since they set up the Ahab thing, I just threw him in as the MacGuffin of the X Men annual, dealing with Rachel and uh, Franklin and her own hangups in that regard. Uh, as far as where this fits into Days of Future Past, as a, it's a prelude. It's the setup. It answers some leftover questions on my behalf and ideally perhaps throws in some surprises along the way. For example, we established that while the audience presumed Kurt had died because Rachel told them that this is what she understands happened with Kurt and um, his wife. I established in the Nightcrawler miniseries I did a five years ago, that Kurt also has another true love who's kind of different mm -hmm. um, in that uh, bloody vest, who is the Elizabeth Summers of Earth One and is definitely not Psylocke. Because <laughs> um, if you're Kurt, why not have a girlfriend who's a stone killer and a psychopath? And it's true love. So there you go. Anyway, they're teamed up with Sage and uh, Bishop and one other character who shall remain nameless because you find out on the, the very next page of the prelude. And they're in a quandary. They have to figure out a way to stop the Sentinels before they expand to the rest of the world. And this story provides them a possibility. It also establishes or reestablishes from my perspective, my view of the canon as defined by my 17 original years and six or seven subsequent X years. And um, it is framed by absolutely spectacular art by Salvador La Roca. We get into the details of these things, and it's stuff that fans love to talk about. These character details, the relationships, the But they dynamics. have to buy the book first. <laughs> um, uh, what are your thoughts generally on canon? Is that something that you really like and that you take, uh, you get a lot of ammunition from? Or is that something that is just kind of wishy-washy, oozy-woozy, you figure it out? I approach it from a totally different perspective than everybody else. My view of canon is at this point, I should be completing my 40th consecutive year on the title. You know, canon for me is the stuff I wrote and continued to write, should have, would have, would have, should have, could have continued to write, uh, except for forces beyond my control. I built this foundation. I mean, I built it on top of Stan's and Jack's and Roy's and Neil's, but this is what Dave Cockrum and I essentially created and what John and I continued and what Paul Smith and I kicked out of the ballpark. And my perception of the characters and the realities, aside from being totally correct, is my perception. It's not any of the subsequent writers' perceptions. And so I look at that and what I see in them in the work that I look at is a totally, for me, it's an alternate universe. Mm -hmm. And that's as it should be. I mean, Stan's whole point was you have these books, these characters for a while 
And when you're done, we put them back on the shelf. And then the next person to write it comes along and does what they do. And then they put it back on the shelf and we go on from there. Marvel was a continued reality. We try to reflect off of who we are and what we're doing so that a reader can read one title and be intrigued by a reference to another title and maybe go over and give that a look. Spider-Man swings through an issue of X-Men just as they're grabbed by Arcade. And he thinks, holy cow, what's that? I'll give them a call. And he gives a call and then something happens in the X-Mansion, which leads to a totally different story because the note that's written gets blown under the table by the force of the character's uh, departure. We try to make it plausible, but we try to make it plausible with surprises, little things, because that's something a reader can relate to. Everybody writes a note and it gets dumped under whatever foolishness is on the table. That's reality. And therefore, if you can take reality and put it in comics, there's a link there between what you're reading on the page and experiences that you might have in your own life. If you put all of the super characters in their own little bubble verse, if there's hardly ever a moment where they interact in a way that relates to the world the readers live in, then to me anyway, being, I can see totally old school, that narrows the, the bridge between the two the two parties. And I don't want to narrow the bridge between me and the readers. I want to expand it. I want to widen it. I want to make it a 50 lane superhighway with no speed limit because I want everybody out there I can get to read this stuff and enjoy this stuff and tell all their friends. And yes, it is solipsistic and it is greedy, but damn it, I was having fun reading it. And I always prefer it when the sales go up. <laughs> As do we. Um, you know, thinking about some of the things you're talking about, the connections the readers have, emotional, the the, the real world stuff. Jumping into um, Days of Future Past, 141, there's panels in there and scenes and, and feelings that like just stick with me as a reader, having read this story so many times over the years, when you see the, the graves, uh, mm -hmm. in, in, and you, you see the South Bronx internment center and, you know, like living in New York city or in and around New York city, my entire life. Like I, I know where that could be. I see those, those graves is so horrifying and sad. And, and that connection to the Marvel universe, I think is so important because it places the fantastic fours graves there. It places mm -hmm. so many of the X-Men there. Um, and so we meet just, you know, a few, a handful of surviving X-Men. Uh, was there a reason why you and, and John chose Kate, Colossus, Storm, Wolverine, Franklin, Rachel, and even Magneto for this story over any of the others? Well, our thought was if you're going to grab the reader, you want to grab them with your A-team. But wait, Scott's dead. Yep. Maybe not the A-team you think it is. Mm. But... Aurora's there, Colossus is there, Logan's there. What the hell could go wrong with that? Nothing is going to happen to them. Well, surprise. 
the goal was in my creative concept is you create a situation where the root is obvious and then you immediately start throwing in surprises. You get to page 30 of Dark Phoenix and you think, okay, we know how this is gonna end. And indeed in the first draft, that's exactly how it ended because it never really occurred to John or me that there could be a lasting consequence of all of this. We had to put all the pieces back where they belong. And it took Shooter, Jim Shooter, to come in and be the grown-up and say, you cannot get a do-over after planetary genocide, no matter what. She killed 6 billion people. That has to have consequences. And erasing her powers doesn't count because everybody knows they'll come back. Hell, I killed her and she came back. <laughs> you know, and the moment she comes back, you can call her Jean Grey Marvel Girl for the next 10 years, but sooner or later, she's going to become Phoenix. And if she becomes Phoenix, then the original story conclusion doesn't matter. Marvel had evolved to the point where death is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's become a cliche. It's become... No matter how gruesomely you die, no matter how much editors or, re or writers can swear till the cows come home, the character is really dead. Everyone knows that sooner or later, a writer will change, an editor will change, policy will change, and they'll come back. Therefore, the challenge for me then as a writer is to find a way that is as impactful or hopefully more impactful to take its place. The point of Days of Future Past is in terms of the lives of the characters, because they are in reality. They are looking at the past. This is a done deal. Those graves are real. Logan in the movie comes to the future and everything's happy. The Scott who died in X3 is alive. Gene who died in X3 is alive. Everything's happy because we've switched perspective. But if we were in the present with Charlie and the team looking ahead, not knowing what comes next, not Wolverine disappears and that's it, they don't know. And for me, that not knowing is far more fun as a dramatic tease than, than the alternative. So I guess for me as a writer, the trick is to now find something within the reality within the story, within the people themselves, that can have that crucial, that solid, that unforgettable an impact. You know, it's so, it is so interesting to hear you talk about the inherent challenge of writing in a universe where death doesn't matter. What's your process for asking yourself that very question of saying, well, if death doesn't matter, what does matter? Uh, how do I ask the bigger questions? You, you ask a question and you give the characters the choices to deal with. I mean, this is a point that arises in, in this very story. Is that there is something they can do, but is it even possible given the structural reality of the character they're talking about, uh, who has been 
literally biologically rebuilt so that her cellular structure is literally redefined by sentinel nanites. A, how can you kill her? B, how can you mine her for data? C, what do you do? What happens next? And answering those questions constitutes a significant part of the story. I did a story earlier in the year where it's sort of the much like Prelude to Future Past. It's an add-on that takes place between panel four and five of the next to the last page of the Kitty Wolverine miniseries. And what's it all about? It's about Logan driving quote unquote home to a little town in the middle of nowhere in the north of Japan to get involved with a young mother and her son who are being threatened by local villains. And the, the moment there is our revelations about Logan. A, he's a chef. He makes really great ramen and Kitty's stunned by this. And then at the end, you know, you have these bad guys be, trying to beat the living daylights out of him, but they're just ordinary thugs hitting someone whose skeleton is made of adamantium. Give me a break. So you, you take the traditional tropes of a story and you turn them around. But the key here is Logan's a chef and it's the Logan noodle house. Why? Because he's the woman who owns the houses. Great, 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 great grandfather. And that, for me anyway, is surprise. He's been around a while. Hmm. And not everything he does is hacking and slashing. You know, this is the discussion that Frank Miller and I had driving back from San Diego when I was pitching him the, the miniseries. Claws and slashing are boring. You can do fun visuals, and some writers think it's really, really cool. But for me, it's boring. I want to find out what makes the man tick in terms of, I may never die. And yes, in my visualization of Logan, he doesn't die. You know, even in days of future past, the sentinels incinerate him down to the bedrock so that all that's left are the adamantium bones. But I know there is an out. And, you know, if I, if I were doing another story and if I had a relevant, cool way, need, need for him, I would, I would do it. Mm. The thing to bear in mind is not all of his great, cool, super abilities. It's the man himself. The key to Logan is that he isn't invulnerable, that what he does hurts. And if I'm writing him, the, the, the way, the perspective from my point of view is the claws are the last thing to come out because it effing hurts. And there's so many easier ways, especially with, your, with adamantium bones, of beating the daylights out of your adversaries. Yeah, that even comes up in in these uh, in Days of Future Past uh, in the present day stories with Storm and, and telling him to sheath his claws. And a lot of all this stuff is um, is relevant to our discussion. But we, we're about to let you go because I know you're a busy man. You got a lot to go on to. Um, I do want to talk about uh, the Marvel Made Paragon Collection also has your script and some notes from Days of Future Past, which is super cool. So everybody who's checking this out, you've got a prelude story. Uh, Prelude of Future Past, plus some really cool bonus materials. And the last question I was thinking of, because 
This is the first time I've read this story as a father. I now have a one-year-old daughter. And reading this, um, the converse, there's it's, it's just a few tiny mentions between Kate and Peter in the future of their children. And that, to me, was just so devastating that the Sentinels took their babies. And I reading that now. They didn't take them. Murdered them. <laughs> It would, that was the context that I, I got from yeah, it in exactly my reading right. of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, and, and actually, in, in my, the irony is, is, as my perception evolved in terms of Kitty's future, Kate's future, where she becomes the last president of the United States, it, it still holds true. The reason that she's the last president is the, the one part of the X-Men canon that thus far has never altered is days of future past you know alan in alan davis in excalibur sent the team and rachel to the future to fix things and they did but the problem the 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 macguffin there that the inescapable one is the world rachel left is not the world she arrives in why because Scott's first child is not, as far as Rachel knows, she's the only daughter of Scott Summers. Except when she arrives, Scott and Madeline are, are married, and their first their first child is Nate, who goes on to become Cable. So things are already screwed from her perspective, and everything has evolved f- subsequently to take the reality even more a field from the from the original timeline so it is an interesting question as to where future past fits into marvel reality as it now exists because the irony the the road i follow when i'm writing stories is that regardless of current reality kate's future is locked I mean that was that was an element of of Brent Anderson's and my framing sequence for God Loves. To me, that's that's the inescapable constant. Um, and even as Kate and Peter split apart, come together, split apart, we don't know where that's leading. I mean, I know where it's leading, but I don't. You know, that's that's my personal vision, which may not be Marvel's vision. The advantage we have as creators in the present day is we are hypothesizing about events that have not occurred. Therefore, anything goes. The challenge, the the reverse perspective that that is seen in the films is that they're from the present looking at events in the past. Therefore, they can fix things. So it's from a creative standpoint, we in comics have the advantage because we can play with, we can come up with an infinite number of stories. The realities that exist in comics today can be adjusted, adapted, evolved to to lead us down the path to that. Everything is fungible. We can hit the reader with a visual image that is so intense 
that they can't wait to A, see the next panel, or B, turn the next page. And, and then at the end of the issue, wait 30 days for the next issue, which is, holy cow. Um, that's what I love about comics. It's right here in your face. And it's in your face with the, be the, the most viral, enticing elements that are part of cinema but we can do it faster and we can if if the right you have the right team like me and john we can do it better and as archie goodwin bless him used to say if you fuck up you got 30 days to fix it <laughs> uh chris uh that was a great note to leave us on um thank you for chatting with us about uh all your story these stories that we've talked about there's so many more we can talk about hopefully we'll have another opportunity at a later date the pleasure was mine my apologies for as usual wandering very far afield <laughs> i'm i'm sorry it's just too damn much fun <laughs> good if it's fun then that that's great i think the, the listeners will enjoy it as well i hope so too and um all the best to all you guys and have a happy Thanksgiving and a happy Christmas if we all last that long. <laughs> I have faith that we will. Thank you, Chris. Thank you You're so much, Chris. Welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Chris Claremont, what can you say about Chris Claremont? Such an incredible writer. So much fun, even after, like you, Ryan, uh, this is a book that I'd read so many, so many times uh, and uh, to be able to dive into it a little bit and then get Chris's perspective, not just on that, but on these characters that so obviously live as real people in his head to this very day uh, is really interesting. It's really cool to see how alive they are um, to him. And it's really great to see his perspective on all that stuff. Indeed. All right. That about wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker, Marcus, Jorge Estrada, MR Daniel, and Megan Bagala. Jill Duboff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And he was also at the big feast during Ten of Swords this week. He oh. ate the unicorn because he is a monster. <laughs> Brad, you're a monster. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Who would eat unicorns?